Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Russell Rhodes with Keller Williams Realty in Dallas, Texas. Last year, he closed 578 transactions with a total sales volume of $194 million. His average sales price was $335,000, of which 49% were buyers and 51% were sellers. He operates a team with 24 members, 12 buyer agents, one listing partner, one general manager, one operations manager, two listing department, three closing department, one marketing manager, one director of first impressions, one runner, and one team leader. Russell Rhodes is the team leader of the Rhodes team. He's been an agent for 14 years. He's sold over 4,000 homes in his career and was ranked the number one agent in the world for Keller Williams Realty in 2011 and 2012. In this call, Russell Rhodes will talk about why he hired an assistant his third week in real estate, how he personally sold 191 homes last year, how he gets 48% of his business by repeats and referrals, the three major components to build a business by referral, why he gave his staff a raise during the Great Recession, how to turn your past clients into raving fans, his marketing plan to past clients and sphere of influence, Details about his three major past client events, his unique client appreciation program, how he built a 35% market share in his geographic farm, his team member retention strategy that works. Two of his staff members have been with him for over 11 years and four of his buyer agents for over eight years, plus team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Russell. Hi, Mike. Hey, Russell. Great to have you here. Russell, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Sure. I went to TCU and got my degree in finance, graduated in 1986, worked for a company called Arthur Anderson, which was a big eight accounting firm. I was in their systems consulting division. I worked for them for four years. Then I worked for PepsiCo in their corporate audit group. Then I ran an apparel company that we took from inception to took it to 23 million in sales and we sold it to an LA based company. And then I went there and I was the, uh, and ran the operations there. It was about a hundred million dollar company. And then I joined the rest of the internet hopefuls uh, or also known as idiots and uh, thought we were going to make a gazillion dollars. And so we, uh, about three months after I got into it, that's when the whole dot-com crashed. And so then I had to step back, and this was now in 2000, 
and reevaluate what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up. And so uh, I came from a background of real estate. My father was a custom home builder, relatively small custom home builder from 1981 uh, on. And my mother was in real estate and sold residential real estate from 1979. So I was always around the real estate world and, and understood that. And so my wife and I were reflecting after the uh, the dot-com uh, crash. We were trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do next? And um, my wife wanted to move back to Dallas, which is where we were both originally from. At the time, we had two boys. Now we have three. But to get our boys back with the grandparents. And so we um, moved back to Dallas in 2000, and I got into um, – she, she actually – we were in Tennessee at this point, and she was uh, – she stayed there with the boys for two months while I got my real estate license and you know tried to get us a home here. And then she came on, and we've uh, been kind of plugging away ever since. When you came back to Dallas – and you started into real estate, did you start working with your parents or did you do it independently? I did it independently. My mother had been with Remax for uh, probably 10 to 12 years. And so I first came back with Remax and I was doing my own thing. And then I, uh, after about a year, I felt that Keller Williams probably was a little bit more conducive to creating the team atmosphere that I was wanting to create. And so I uh, switched over to Keller Williams, and I kind of did my own thing for about a year and saw that we could really build a real estate um, company, if you will, as opposed to just a you know a little sales team. So I, um, after about a year, um, I we kind of started up going along and hired a couple, or hired at that time, I guess just one administrative person, and was sharing with my mother that I what I thought we could do and. So then um, she came and joined me after, I guess, maybe I'd been in the business for two years by that point. And then, um, and then just kind of slowly built the business from there. Now my, my father works with us and um, my sister, who was an interior decorator, she's joined us. And my nephew now has joined us, who was in uh, a, mortgage, a mortgage broker and so, uh, before. And so we've slowly just kind of been building up the team having a lot of fun. So it's become a family business. It has, uh, but at the same time, making sure or doing our best to not make it a, a family business in a negative sense. You know, it's very much run as a proper business. And if uh, I always tell people that if my, my mother wasn't performing, then we'd have to let her go. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, and uh, the, the, the great news is, is that that's never an issue because she's phenomenal. But the thing that I don't want to do with a lot of family businesses I've heard is that sometimes people get just a rite of passage because they're a family member and they're allowed to, to act in ways that are not appropriate or conducive to the business. And what I didn't want to do was foster that kind of environment because I don't think then you earn the respect of the, the rest of the staff, the rest of the team members. And so we run it very professionally. And you know, as long as everybody performs and delivers, then then we they get to stay part of the team, and whenever they're not, then then they're going to be asked to leave. When you first went back to Dallas that first year, did you have a fast start or a slow start in real estate? I got my license in May 2000, and I hired an assistant. I think in either the second or third week that I started, and um, by the end of that year, uh, so by December. 
I had sold, I can't remember how many units now I sold that first, that first eight months, but, but I remember that I, I, I think I sold roughly around 82,000 in commissions and I think I netted maybe 32,000 maybe because my focus was not as much on, um, I was more trying to start building up, and so I knew the direction that I was wanting to go, and I knew I needed to get an assistant right away to start, you know, helping to put together websites and listing presentations and marketing materials and all those other things. And from the corporate world, I had other people that could that would help me take care of the administrative things, and so I wasn't as proficient at it. Plus, I knew if I spent time doing that as opposed to working with clients, that I wouldn't be able to build up my business the way I'd in as quickly as I wanted and needed to build it up. So right away, we start hiring the administrative people. And, and so my expenses were pretty high there for the first couple of years as we were trying to put all of our systems in place. You've been in the business, you said 2000, so about 14 years? Uh, yes, sir. How many homes did you sell last year? Me personally or the team? You and the team. 578. In 2013, and then in 2012, we sold 481, and then the year before that, we sold 357. That's been some great growth. Yeah, we've been, been very pleased. Last year, the, the 578, do you remember the sales volume? We did $194 million. That is fabulous. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was a very exciting year. It's one of those ones you just kind of hold on to your bootstraps as you're... Uh, as you're kind of going along, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and a lot of uh, a lot of challenges that go with it. But we were incredibly blessed. Russell, you said your team sold 578 homes last year. How many homes did you personally sell? 191. Wow, you personally sold 191 of those homes. Correct. That's fantastic. Thank you. But it's primarily, you know, the the, the reason that I was able to sell so many is my mother and I work very closely together. I go out and work with a lot of folks, go into listing appointments, work with them, and then when the contracts come in, she's just an absolutely phenomenal negotiator. And so she helps me a lot on negotiating the contracts, following up with people, getting them what they need. So, you know, out of the 190-something homes that I sold, probably 160, 70 of those roughly were listings and I probably worked with another 20 to 25 buyers. And so what I'll do is I'll usually just work the buyers when it's slower. So usually in, let's say from July to January, you know, I'll pick up some buyers just to keep things interesting. <laughs> just to stay busy, huh? Exactly right. Wow. Oh, that's phenomenal. You've had some really great upticks in the last few years. What do you attribute that to? I've got a coach that, probably the first coach that I ever worked with that I really thought was making a difference for us and really helped us to build up our buy side. Before, we were pretty strong on our listings, but we had never really built up a stronger buyer agent side. There was never really a focus. It was just more of just kind of being there. And once we started really focusing on the buy side, it really helped us to uh, start picking up our numbers. Who was the coach? Bob Corcoran with Corcoran Consulting. Bob's excellent. Yeah, he, he does a good job. 
Where is Dallas, Texas? Dallas is in the northern part of Texas. They actually refer to it as North Texas. And it's about uh, an hour south of the Oklahoma border. It's really a great hub, and there's a lot of businesses here. Texas is a very employer-friendly state. There's no state income tax, so that helps makes it very attractive to a lot of businesses because it's centrally located in the United States. It also makes it a great hub for people that as they're traveling to the east and west coast and then also down to uh, Central America and, and et cetera. There's actually a lot of jobs coming here right now because I think it's just because of the, the proximity and the it's very uh, employee-employer friendly. What's the population there? Good question. I'm not for sure. I believe it's somewhere as far as the Dallas-Fort Worth because there's a, the Fort Worth is about 30 minutes to the west of Dallas. And you, if you take the whole Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, I'm guessing 6 to 7 million. That's a big area. It is. We focus on North Dallas area. There's a the large airport here, international airport, it's called DFW Airport. We focus a lot on the whole northern part of the Metroplex, which is where the, you know, a little bit higher end, when I say higher end for Texas, you know, higher end here is, you know, 250, well, that's not higher end, but two, probably the average sales price around here is probably somewhere around 250. And then um, we, we focus more on the northern part of the Metroplex. Describe your current real estate market. Last year was extremely strong. Strongest we'd had in probably six or seven years as far as how quickly the homes were selling. You know, we, would, we were going from average days on market of 70-something days to an average now of 40-something days, especially on homes that are uh, less expensive for our area. Homes, let's say, that are under 200 are selling and very quickly. Also, there's um, hedge funds that are coming in here and, and buying up some of the probably properties up to, I guess, 200. And so what they're doing is they're really driving up the prices on the, on the smaller houses. In general, there's never been much appreciation really in the Dallas area. It averages about 3% of the a year. And you can look back over any 10 to 15-year period, and it's pretty consistent at about 3% a year. Some years it'll go down to nothing or, or be a negative, but then it'll kind of go back up 6 7%. But on average, you usually get about 3%. So you don't have the bigger swings like you may, might do in Florida or California as far as the uh, home appreciation and then decline. Russell, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Where my main focus is is in referral Based business, uh, I guess 48% of the homes that we sold last year were referrals. Very strong from past client referrals. And we work really hard in the area to have a, a great reputation and to do the right thing no matter what it costs. And so that referral based is an extremely big portion of our business. And then I'd say another. 20 or 25% comes from geographical farming, then the rest of the business comes in more from internet leads and you know just various other sources. Let's dive into a couple of these areas that you're generating leads in business. First, let's start with your past clients' sphere of influence, these referrals that you've talked about, which 
make up or comprise uh, half of your business. That's pretty impressive. First of all, let's talk about the database itself. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Our database is probably four to 5,000 people. And the reason I say that so loosely is that I have a general manager that, that runs, you know, all the details and she knows it all, you know, intimately. So uh, some of those things, I give more of a generalization, whereas other things when we talk about sales volume and, and profitability and, and all the things that directly do with money, I, I know the numbers exactly. You know, some of the other items, I, I don't know in great, as great a detail as I do that. So but it's roughly four to 5,000. Um, is what we have in our database, and we just got through switching over. We did have online agent, and we just switched over to a software package called Infusionsoft. And so, uh, stay tuned to see if that was a good decision or not. We uh, <laughs> we don't we don't know yet, but we're uh, we're just in the process of doing all the switching over right now as we speak. Yeah, it sounds to me. I I'm just going to step back for a second. Because of a few comments you've made, it sounds like you're really heavily into the sales side and that you've delegated a lot of the operational side of your business out. Is that true? That's, that's exactly right. You know, what I, what I enjoy personally is uh, going out and meeting clients and helping them directly and the, all the administrative aspects of it. We uh, delegate that out to other folks in our team. doesn't mean that I, you know, I came from, because of Anderson, Arthur Anderson and being in systems consulting, I can get very detailed very quickly if there's an issue. But what I found is, is that I've got great administrative folks that I can count on that are doing it and doing and performing at a very high level. And so because of that, I can focus on the sales side, which has a much higher return on my time. And so that's what my primary focus is. But if there's ever an issue, I can delve into the detail very quickly. You are definitely multifaceted. Few people are able to switch back and forth between that emotional side and that logical side and do both well. So that's impressive that one, you can do it. And two, you've chosen to go into the side that will generate the most revenue for the overall operation. That was really sharp. Did you ever do, a, say, a DISC personality profile to find out where you are? I did, and it's funny because when I first took the DISC profile back in, I don't remember, whenever it was, 2001, 2, 3, 4, whatever it was, I was a D with a much lower I, and then recently I took it and I was an I with a lower D. It's funny, I think, as, you know, before... I got into sales, I was always operations. So for the first, what, 15 years of my career, I was totally operations. And, you know, very hard-driven, you know, focused, you know, driving teams, blah, blah, blah. And then since I've now come to more of the sales side for the last 14 or 15 years, 14 years, I guess, I found myself to be a little bit softer, probably more compassionate and less hard-driven and more on the human side, I guess. Sure, more empathetic. Yeah, right, right. Now that's fascinating. Thank you. Let's dive back into your past client sphere of influence. You mentioned that you have about four to 5,000 people in the database. I try to help us break that out a little bit. For instance, do you know how many past clients you have at this point? 
don't know the number exactly, but if you know, just roughly, uh, we've sold 275 to 300 homes by year four or five, and we did that for about four years. We were kind of stuck in that number between 275 and 300 for four or five years. I would say as an average of, let's say, probably 250 a year, let's say, because the first years were a lot less. And so what's that? 10 years is 2,500, and then another four on that, 2,500. So probably roughly 3,000, 3,500 houses maybe, or 3,500 clients maybe, 3,500, maybe 4,000. And then my mother, before I ever got in, she was a top performer for Remax. She was one of the top agents. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Mary Harker, who's just a phenomenal agent and yes. pretty well known in the Dallas area. My mother was her big competitor. And so she and my mom would go back and forth on who would be number one with Remax <laughs> in the state of Texas back in the 80s. And so... You know, it's funny, a lot of times people think that the reason of our success is because I'm on the coattails of my parents, and I'm not saying this in a defensive way, but more to let people know that it doesn't have to be that way, because the truth is, and I'll share with you here as we get into it, my mother, as far as past business, has very little, she's brought in very, very little. I mean, I bet she hasn't brought in 20 clients. Even though she's so phenomenal, I'll kind of share with people, there's some important things to understand about that. But um, but really, it's been all business that we've generated since we've been doing this for the last 14 years. I am interested in those lessons from your mom. She obviously did a lot of volume, did a lot of past clients. It sounds to me like she may have dropped the ball a little bit in the follow-up of the, her past clients, which, by the way, is very common, and we hear that a lot. And so I, I'd like to, if, if you don't mind and it's, it's, I prefer that she's on the call with us, but if you don't mind telling us the lessons that you learned uh, from her experience that it sounds like you've uh, modified for your own business. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm actually teaching a class, teaching a course on uh, building a business by referrals. The premise of what I'm teaching is is really the, the three main aspects of building, uh, from my perspective anyway, a strong business by referral. Now, the first part is how do you treat your, your employees? And I think people really miss that aspect of it. The other part is what do you do with your clients to create the raving fans? And then the third part of it is, is how do you keep the flame ignited? How do you keep your client excited and fired up so that when someone talks about that they need to sell their home or want to buy a new one, that your clients are excited and anxious to let their, their friend or colleague or family member know you've got to call Russell. And, and, if you, and if there's not that real flame ignited in them, as time goes on, they're going to be less likely to refer you because they're not as excited, not that they didn't have a good experience, but that you're not doing things to keep yourself top of mind and to keep them excited about what kind of great service you provide. Let's outline your three steps for us and then define them. The first component that I think that so many people miss is that you need to create raving fans of your, your, your team members, of your employees. And I see so many people miss that element because it's your, your staff that's going to be, as, as you grow, that will be doing a lot of the interaction with your clients 
And if they are not really excited and fired up and proud to be a member of your team, then how are they ever going to create that enthusiasm with the customer? You know, they have to feel it. It has to be who they are. And so the first thing that we look for is that you hire people with a servant's heart. First focus is not how fast can they type or do they know Excel or anything administratively. The first question is, is trying to get to know them well enough in the interview to see do they really have that 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 DNA that wants to help people that that's who they are you know the person that when you you know when you when you go to Home Depot and you ask where the the you know the screwdrivers are is it the type person who just kind of points you over to aisle either seven or eight or is it the one that walks you over and explains to you the different ones and then reminds you that over on the end cap on aisle twelve they're having a special on those and buy one get one free or whatever it is is it someone that really goes through and, 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 and when someone calls in, do they really just want to give a quick answer and get off the phone or do they really want to make sure that the client really understands and got the answer to their question and is there anything else they need help with? And and I believe that there are people that that it's who they are that really want to help people. They really care. And then there's other people who it's just a job and they're just, they're just it's just next. What I look for, first of all, is the people that have that passion to help people. That's the first thing. The next thing after that is, and once you build up that, is how do you get that team member to be excited to be part of your team? And then I believe the the first part of that is is that you need to create you, you need to conduct yourself in a way as a leader that builds and earns respect. And a lot of times people think respect comes with a title, but it doesn't. It comes with your, uh, in my opinion anyway, it comes with your actions every day and how you handle things. And when there's a problem, do you try to figure out how do you get out of that problem? Meaning that it doesn't matter if it was your fault or not, if you're just looking for the cheapest way or the what do you do, whatever it takes to get out of it, or do you step up and, and handle the problem the right way and treat people consistently the right way? And that's how you, in my opinion, earn the respect of your team. And if they have respect for you, then they're going to have respect for the company and they're going to be excited when they talk to customers and they're really going to believe in their heart that working with your team is the only answer, that there's no other team that could provide a better service and could care for more, care for them more than you. And I really believe that. I, I, I believe that there's no one that truly cares more than we do. I'm not saying there might be, there's things we do wrong, God knows, but I truly care. I really, really care. And it helps me also as I get customers that don't appreciate or respect that, it's easier for me to cut bait with them rather than try to force them into our team when they don't because they they just suck up too much energy. We do that from a team members is that we make sure we try very hard to make sure there's that respect and that we earn that and that I earn that every day and my team, my manager earns that respect every day. And again, it's not, it doesn't come with a title. It comes with something that you earn every day. I had a boss when I was in the apparel industry and the company had just started and I think there was four or five people there and he brought me on to run the operations. And I'd met him on a plane and whole long story there. But anyway, he flies me into Santa Fe and he never tells the people that my job was to run it because his view was, and nor was I allowed to say anything. And if I did, he would fire me, he told me. 
And what he said was that if they don't naturally gravitate towards me within the first three months coming to me for the solutions and answers in an industry that I had no experience in in apparel, but if they did not gravitate towards me, then he was going to fire me. And I didn't need to tell anybody that I was the boss because I'm not going to be the boss anymore. If I'm naturally the boss, people will naturally gravitate to me for solutions because they'll see that I'm the best person to go to to find the solutions, the answers to their or the challenges that they've got going on. So that's kind of my philosophy there. The next thing with the staff is I believe you've got to pay them right. I pay all my people a little bit more than what you'll see going on in the market. And we offer retirement, offer 401k. We do the health, health benefits. They get all the normal vacation times that you get in big companies. I think after five years, you get three weeks in vacation. So what I wanted to do is create an environment where people would want to stay here. You see, you have that retention. So like my general manager that I hired right out of college, she's been with me now. I've been in, doing it for 14 years, and she's been with me 13 years. And Shelly, my contract to close person, has been with me for 11 years. Cynthia, my listing manager, has been with me for seven or eight years. I believe that if you treat the people, first of all, if you hire the right people, and if you treat them right and you pay them right and you show that you respect them, I believe that they will stay on and that they also will be excited when they talk to your customers and helpful and the clients love them. And when you do that, you'll build up raving fans within your customers. But if you don't treat your people right, then they're not going to be excited when they're working with your clients. And so therefore, that client is going to miss that aspect of it. So I believe that is such a fundamental part. It was interesting when the market turned down in 2007 and one of my competitors reduced the salaries of all his people 10% because, you know, we were told the market's turn, you got to cut your people's salary. I think that's being a pig. Instead of making 600000 a year, and let's say that that person can go through and cut his five people's salaries 10000 apiece. And so now that makes him $50,000 more, if you will. That 10000 that you cut from each person's salary, that makes a difference of whether or not they make a car payment. That makes a difference whether or not uh, they uh, have health insurance. Even though we provide it, you know, we provide a portion of it. It's a big issue. But, you know, the difference for them is making, instead of making 600 they make 550 right, if they don't do it. And I just think that's crazy. And so when I heard them cut everybody's salaries 10% and it's kind of a buzz, I went through and, and increased all of my people's salary 10% even when the market was turning down because I wanted to send a message that I appreciate and respect my people and that I'm there for them and I'm not, you know, unless I just absolutely do not have a choice, I'm not going to affect their livelihood. And because of that, our businesses continued to grow. And, you know, and we, we, even when that market really turned, I think we went from 290 homes to the next year we did 266 homes which was only a 10%, but you're talking about an area where it dropped 25, 30%. My wife and I still did fine with the money. You know, we still were able to live well and, and, and do fine. But I just think that so many team leaders are so quick to try to take money from their staff, it hurts them in the long run. But the problem is that they're short-term thinkers instead of long-term thinkers. You just got to think long-term about building a loyal staff because they in turn will be the ones that's going to help you build a strong referral business. And then we do other things for our staff because we want to make it a fun environment. 
what we have like NFL Spirit Day, so they'll wear their jerseys and just like that to, to work, and we'll do a, um, a Halloween thing where they all dress up in Halloween and they decorate their doors and stuff, and they you know get a prize. And but it, uh, during the summer, I live on on a lake here in Dallas, and we uh, rent a couple more boats, and so we'll have three or four boats out there, and everyone brings their children and their significant others to our house, and it's just a time for my wife and I to say thank you and get all their families together and just kind of blow off steam and, you know, in the middle of the summer when it's, uh, when usually the volume's the highest and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And then at Christmas time, my wife and I throw another party at our house for the team member and their significant other to, uh, again, to say thank you for a, a, you know, a great year and to uh, just have them over for dinner and just a chance for us to spoil them and to show our appreciation. And so those are the kind of things that we do in order to make our team members raving fans of the company. So in turn, they can help go out and make our clients raving fans of our company as well. So that's kind of that first leg that I believe that is missed so much because every time I always hear people talk about reducing salaries of your people in the market terms and all that, and I just have a totally different philosophy. So the step one is to get your employees on board. Number one, find the right people, which it sounds like you spend a lot of time doing that. Number two is pay them right. And number three is reward them for doing the right thing and finding solutions for the clients and customers, such as these team parties. I also think it was interesting you pointed out that you create a model for them by showing your employees, your team members, how to be a good leader by solving their problems, just like you expect the team members to solve the problems of the customers. Right. And one thing, Mike, if I could also add in there is that I, I try to not make the team members afraid to make decisions. I watch some leaders who they will berate their people if they make a mistake. My number one person, Tiffany, who's my general manager and who's absolutely amazing, she one time, two years ago, I think it was, she doesn't normally figure net sheets. There was a client called in, needed to know the net sheet, and they needed to know the net, whether they're going to accept an offer or not. Long story short, when she did it, she made a mistake and did not figure in our commission. So when she told him what their net would be, she did not add in our commission. And so when we get to the, the closing, uh, HUD-1, and they see you know, that now they're making 9000 less than what we told them, you know, they called us up and I found out and, and uh, I had the 9000 taken off the, the HUD-1. We didn't get paid. And two parts to that. One is that we did the right thing, obviously, even though we could have held them contractually to it for the seller. But the other thing that I did is I never yelled or got mad at Tiffany. We talked about how do we stop it from happening again. But what she did was she was trying to help another team member who was totally just bombarded. It was, you know, in the busiest time. We're selling 70-something homes that month. And she just filled in to help real quick because the seller called in and needed to know right now. And their seller was going through a divorce. And it was just a real messy thing. But anyway, Tiffany makes, you know, 10,000 decisions a year. And she might make two mistakes all year. So the way some leaders do it is they just really parade the person or really mad at them or say it's going to take money out of their paycheck or or whatever it is. 
And I just think that's the wrong approach. I think if they continue to make problems, you fire them. But you can't build a business and make the people afraid to make decisions because then they'll never make decisions. You just try to help teach them when there are mistakes. And if there's a problem, what we do is we talk about it in a staff meeting. When I screw up something, I tell everybody, let me tell you what I just did. I just cost the company $3,700, and this is what I did. And this is what I'm going to do differently next time to make sure that doesn't happen. And we throw it out there and throw each other under the bus in a respectful way whenever there's a problem. But it's not to beat them up. It's so that we can all talk about how do we not let it happen again. But again, it's also, I believe, in a way of how do you build that loyalty with the staff because they know that I've got their back and that I'm not going to yell at them or make, you know, or or, um, talk down to them. You know, sometimes you make mistakes and it just is what it is. It's part of life. And when you make a lot of decisions, you're going to make mistakes. And you just can't be afraid of it. You just got to keep moving. And that's how you learn how to make better decisions in the future is by making mistakes today and learning from them. Yes? Right. So, that, so that's the, kind of the first component, if you will, as far as I believe on how do you get a staff, your team, to be raving fans of your company. Because, you know, they're the ones who have most of the interaction with your clients. And then the next component is from the client-based, what we do very hard is on the, on the raving fans is, first of all, we make sure that we, you know, great communication with our clients, you know, following up with them every week, our sellers, keeping them informed of any new homes that came on the market, any homes that went under contract, making sure that when the customer calls in, we call them back within the same day. We try to immediately, but, you know, sometimes it might be, you know, two or three hours later, depending on, you know, if it's the end of the month and it's, you know, lots of closings and all that. The other part, really, that we do in trying to build that real strong client referral-based or raving fans is also the way that we handle issues. If there is ever an issue that comes up, if it's even remotely gray, then I will pay or take care of the problem. I want to make sure that there's never a question that if, if we might have done something wrong, that we fix it. No matter what it costs, no matter what it is, the question for me is not what does it cost. The question is what's the solution, and whatever that solution is is what we do. I just had someone the other day that was kind of they they had a whole home audio type thing, and they had this really high end receiver, and they had these different components all around the house, and and unfortunately it needed this one receiver, and they all only worked with this one receiver. And there was a question whether or not that was excluded or not, and the, the seller originally excluded it, and the and then during the co- contract negotiations, she acted like it wasn't a big deal about her leaving it. But bottom line is, and we got to the closing, and she took it, and this, the buyer was upset, and the seller said, hey, but I told you on the listing agreement that it was excluded. Well, I ended up paying $3,200 for two new receivers because it, was, it made the whole home audio thing work in the house. Interestingly, Three weeks later, in fact, I went on the listing appointment yesterday. She just referred me to a friend of hers who's going to be selling their $400,000 house, and they're getting a divorce, unfortunately. And then the, the wife is going to buy a $250,000 house from us. So in this one instance, only three weeks later, we're, we're about to be selling $650,000 in real estate. And the lady was telling me last night about how this one particular seller didn't mention the problem. Was just talking about how we were the best experience she's ever had, that we're just such so professional and all this other stuff. And so, to me, 
it's very much about how you handle problems. And sometimes I'll see people handle problems and they're bitching and moaning the whole time about that they had to handle the problem. So we'll do it, but they'll do it very frustrated and mad and acting frustrated with the client. Don't, don't ever do something and act frustrated about it because then you're trying to, you're trying to get, gain, gain good value. You're doing it, but if you're acting mad about doing it, then you've lost all the goodwill you're trying to create. And so I just try very hard to stay bigger picture focused on that client. We're really big on communicating, doing our best job we can, stay on top of them. Also, what we do is when we go on listing appointments, lots of times the right answer is not to sell. A lot of times the home that they're wanting to buy is not the right answer because it's not going to have a good resale. And so, you know, they tell you in real estate that you're supposed to, you know, someone likes it, keep your mouth shut. You know, just let, you know, let them go for and buy it instead of talking them out of it. But our philosophy is, is that when you sell them a house, you got to make sure that you're not going to be uh, having excuses if they call you up a year later wanting to sell it on now why it won't sell. You should have gone over all those details with them before, and they had to know with their eyes wide open what were the challenges on that house for resale. Or a lady I met the other day who wanted to, was going to have to sell her house, and she didn't want to, and she was crying. She'd worked for three years to buy it, and then she, the job she had was coming too demanding. She was going to have to quit, and because of that, she couldn't afford the house. Well, I met with her for two hours and basically showed her how I think she could still get another job and we talked about it, went over her budget and everything else where now it looks like she can keep her house. Now, of course, I'm not going to get a $475,000 listing, but the goodwill that I'll create with that person because I helped her accomplish what was the right thing for her is going to be much greater than one commission you're going to get on a $475,000 house. And so it's looking more at the bigger picture, I believe, is how you create that loyalty with customers and clients because they see that you really care. You want to find the right solution for them. It's not what's the right thing for you in your pocketbook. It's truly being an agent and looking out for the best interest of your client. Right. So that's what we do from a client side to create raving fans. Then what we do to keep the flame ignited becomes more operational, more procedural, because then it's just what all do you do to stay in touch with the people and to keep your mind top of the mind as they then go throughout their life. So when we first close on the home, we uh, do a, a seven by, you know, instead of like in the Gary Keller red book, you know, they'll talk about it in eight by eight, we do a seven by seven. So we'll start off the, you know, the first week, we'll send them a digital file of all the documents that were part of the transaction will mail to them and then we'll send them a survey and then we'll, we do a variety of things that we send them over a seven week period to stay in touch with them, follow up with a phone call on the fifth week to see how the new house is or, you know, if they move to another area, how that's going. And then after that, we put them on a 33 touch, which varies anywhere from probably 29 touches to 35 touches, depending on how many family members there are because we, we we start off, we send newsletters to them every month. We send them uh, an items of value, whether it's our vendor list or different things that we'll send them of value. And we don't send recipe cards or anything that are non-real estate related. I don't believe in that. We'll send to them the uh, $5 gift certificates, the Starbucks for the adults and $5 gift certificates to the to Target for their kiddos. 
get cards all the time from kids thanking me for their gift certificate. You know, little pictures I'll have around my office where they'll draw me pictures and stuff, which is cute. We'll also have like home anniversary, you know, so every anniversary we'll send them out something reminding them, you know, hey, this is, you know, you know, congratulations to your fifth year of being in the house. You know, how are you guys enjoying it? If you have any questions or, you know, whatever, any, any circumstances that change your life, please give us a call. We also do the anniversary of their, their marriage and we send them and, and send them information on that and, you know, and just acknowledging that for them. So those are all things that we do from a touch. We also have three special events that we do each year at Thanksgiving. We send out a postcard that says that, hey, please call and reserve which pie you would like this year. Would you like a apple or a pumpkin pie? And it's these great big pies. I mean, they're massive that we buy and we um, put stickers on top of them that they kind of have like a picture of our whole team there and reminding them. So when they bring the pie into Thanksgiving for the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, because they usually keep it all wrapped up, you know, there's our team and the client will call in the RSVP on their, uh, let us know which pie they want. And then when they come in that Tuesday before Thanksgiving to pick it up, all of the sales folks and administrative team, they all have to be in the office that day. And then when the folks come up, we, we call call up the salesperson who helped them and they come up and, and meet them and talk to them. And it's just a, a great chance to have a, a touch with them. Last year, I think we had roughly 350 people that we uh, had come up to our office to get the Thanksgiving pies, which is an interesting concept, you know, because our average sales price is roughly 300, 330. And so, you know, obviously these are folks who can afford a pie. And it's interesting to me that they, because I never thought they would, would instead of buying one at the local grocery store when they're walking down the aisle, you know, why they would take their time to come up to our office to pick up a, you know, a a $6 or $10 pie. So I was really surprised and impressed, but they do. I mean, we've been doing it now for three or four years. And when we first started, I think we had around 250 and now we're up to about 350 people that come in to get their pies. And it's a great interaction, and we've been picking up a lot of business from it. When the people are up, where they'll tell us that you know that you know they're the, the mom's pregnant and they need a bigger house, or Joe or husband's getting transferred to Atlanta, and they're going to be contacting us in February, or whatever it is. It's just a chance to interact with them. And then at Christmas time, we do a uh, a popcorn tin where we do like this big popcorn thing that has like, you know, the three different popcorns inside. We have some high school kids come in and get them all sorted and then they, they, they deliver them for us. And on the top of the popcorn tin has that same logo that's on our pies on top of it with all of our with all of our team members on it. And then uh, we have those hand delivered to everyone's houses. And I don't know what there was, probably four or 500 people that they deliver those to at Christmas time and get tons of phone calls from those. And it was interesting. I had one client who we'd sold a house to about nine years ago, and she lives in a little bit further town out, so she's probably 45 minutes away. And so last year, I did not have the popcorn delivered to her house because I thought, oh, it's been a long time. They probably don't even care anyway. Well, it so happens that three months after, so last March, this particular client calls me up, and her husband's getting relocated to Ohio. So she asked me to come out. And so I come out and we're talking and I left her, the kids were doing, et cetera. And she said, oh, you know, what's so funny is they were so disappointed this year when they didn't get your popcorn. And of course, I felt like crap. 
And so she said, uh, she said, you know, they were always so excited. Every Christmas, she'd always say, oh, that's Russell, when the popcorn would arrive for, you know, the previous, whatever I've been doing it for, I think popcorn would be doing it for eight or nine years now. And for the first time, I didn't do it. And then, but then I go up there and I'm listing this, you know, the $575,000 home. And so I, I really got a good lesson on that to not stop because it's not such a big deal to get it delivered. And, and, you know, so it was, it was, it, it was, ex- it was encouraging to me that people still noticed. So we do the popcorn thing. And then at Easter, we send out a postcard basically saying to call an RSVP to come up and draw in a, uh, these plastic eggs that we'll have in a big fishbowl in our office. And inside these plastic eggs, we'll have different prizes. And we'll have anywhere from Waterford crystal vases to honey baked, you know, big honey baked hams to uh, Easter lilies to um, like a nice, like, bunt cake type thing, like a really fancy cake type thing, pastry. And then the grand prize last year was an iPad. Year before that was a weekend getaway at a luxurious hotel here in Dallas with massages and dinners and all the other stuff. We'll do that at, at Easter time. Where oh, and then also this year we added bunnies. So when the people come up to get their to get the eggs, see what prizes they win, they bring the kids up for pictures with with bunnies for Easter. And you know, of course, the the office smelled a little bit like a barn for for two or three days. <laughs> But but the kids just absolutely loved it. Next year, we're going to have to add more bunnies so the kids can play with it because they're wanting to play with the ones that they're having to give back to the next kid for a picture. So we need to have like a general area for a group of bunnies that can be played with while the, the ones that are part of the photo op are, uh, are not wanting to continue to be held. So we're, uh, in, we're trying to get, I think we're going to hire professional photographers this year because we weren't able to to print the, the pictures fast enough. And so what would happen is is that the uh, the people would have to wait around there too long, and then it would start clogging up the office. So we're, we're trying to get smarter as we're doing this. But, you know, it's just another way for us to stay in communication with our clients, and they're coming up to our office. So two of the three activities is them coming to us. You know, the Easter last year, I think we had close to 300 people that came up there. Well, 300 families of which, you know, with moms and kids and all this other stuff, we must have had, I don't know, seven or 800 people in our office during that day. And so, again, those are just different things that we do to keep the kind of that flame ignited, if you will, so it doesn't hopefully kind of dim down. And then we have what we call a client appreciation program where we have all these items that the concept was I saw someone with a moving truck that said, uh, you know, buy a home from me and use this truck for free. And then I thought, you know, why this was, I guess, about nine or ten years ago. I, I thought, you know, why just when they're buying or selling, what a great way for you to stay in touch with your client if you make that truck available all the time, anytime they want to use it. So then I started thinking about, well, what are other items that people could use that, that I could have for them that would be a good reason for them to call me instead of me calling them, asking them, do they know someone thinking about buying or selling? So what I did was I went to a party supply store and a equipment rental store and found those items that people were renting the most often. And then we started buying those items and putting them into our client appreciation program. 
So whenever a client is having a party and they need a margarita machine or a snow cone machine or a popcorn machine or tables and chairs or, or karaoke machines, that they can call my office and they can come and use it and they don't have to go buy it. Well, you know, I mean, it's kind of that law of reciprocity where they're so excited about it that they, they, they naturally want to help you. That you know, they, they want to tell you about someone new moving into the area or their, or their friends that's having to move out of the area. They're excited because you're providing a value to them and they want to show their appreciation. And so that, that's been a, a big success. We have a pickup truck. We have a moving truck. Like the moving truck last year was used 331 days of the 365. The pickup truck was used 311 days. The margarita machines were used 189 days, which is not too bad when you think, you know, most times it's more of the spring, summer, and it's more on the weekends. So like now we have three margarita machines. Those are the three main items, the moving truck, the pickup truck, and the margarita machines. But then we also have like power washers and then all those things for parties that I told you about before we have. And it's just a great way to have our clients reaching out to us instead of us reaching out to them, asking them for a favor. We're actually providing the favor. That's what we do to keep the the flame ignited. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Russell, that was excellent. Let's do this. I know that you're also generating a lot of your business. I think you mentioned about 25%, about a quarter of your business from farming, from geographic farming. Let's go into that for a minute. First of all, how big is your farm and how did you pick it? I kind of came across it by accident. I I was living in a neighborhood with about 2,400 homes. And in that neighborhood, it had different sections. So it has, you know, the the main section of this neighborhood is, is called Wellington. And the main section of the neighborhood, I would say, is homes at the time that were homes that were ranging from about 180,000 to about 350, maybe. And in that, there was probably 1,500 homes like that. And then there was another section called Hillcrest, which is where I lived, where the homes were ranging between, at the time, 350 to 450. And there was, let's say, four or 500 homes that size. And then there was the final section in Wellington was an area called Wichita Chase. And that area also had, let's say, roughly 400 homes. And that area ranged anywhere from 400 to 600. And so I started off in the neighborhood that I lived in, which were the homes from three to four or whatever it was, 350 or 450 or whatever. And I just started marketing to that. Well, first of all, I met a seller when I was doing some previewing. And when his listing expired, he called me up. And so I listed that house and I got it sold pretty quick. And then I did another one and I got it sold pretty quick. And then it started kind of getting some momentum. And so then I started farming to that one little section there of four or 500 homes. So I, I started farming there. And then when I started getting some momentum there, and I think I got up to like 
uh, 40% of the homes that were being sold in there, I was representing the buyer or the seller. Then I started having enough money then that I branched out into the rest of Wellington, which was the additional 2,000 homes, the 1,500 of the smaller and the 500 of the, of the bigger one, roughly. And so um, that was 10 years ago. And so this last year, I think between buyer and seller, I represented, I don't know, probably 73, 75 homes that I sold in that one neighborhood. I think I represented roughly 35 to 40% of all the homes that sold in there. I either had the seller or the buyer. I did about 700,000 in commissions in that one neighborhood. So then what I did was, is, you know, once you start kind of having the money coming from it, then I branched out into the next neighborhood, which was kind of across a busier street, and it had about 1,800 homes. And so then I just slowly started attacking it. And then as I got enough revenue coming in from that, then I went out and found another area of another about 1,100 homes. And then I started chipping away at that. So now I think I'm up to maybe 10 or 11,000 homes. I'm always reevaluating my farm. I'm pretty analytical kind of guy and so I'm always studying it and trying to figure out you know do I need to continue in that market what kind of return am I getting how many homes do I have to sell in there to break even how is my competitors doing are they getting any market share on me if so what is their marketing message that they're doing that's allowing them to start gaining ground on me and then what do I need to do differently It sounds to me like you didn't do a big analytical research project to find out where to start. You started in your own neighborhood. You you lived there. You liked the homes there. But then after that, as you you saw that it was becoming successful, you started to do more analysis, expanded geographically right around your neighborhood. You mentioned, for instance, the the expansion of the 1800 across the street. The 1,100 that you expanded into later and eventually the 10,000, are they all in the same geographic area or did you start branching out into different areas? They're all in the same geographical area. See, I believe that that's critical. I believe when you're doing geographical farming, if you are if you have one neighborhood in one place and you have another one, you know, four miles down the road, what you need is you need the cluster of your signs everywhere so that people feel that wherever they go, they see you, that you're everywhere. And the way you do that is not by being all spread out, but it's all being clustered together. That's my focus is is how do I try to create this illusion that I'm everywhere, that they see my sign everywhere. And the way that I've seen to do that is you've got to cluster together. So when they drive through, they keep seeing my face on all these signs. And, and I think a lot of people, they just have onesie twosie signs everywhere. They don't have the same impact. Your illusion has become reality in that you now have a 35 to 40% market share, right? Right. Like in this one town that I live in last year, we sold 47% more homes in this town than any agent of any company. You know, we also do a lot in other areas as well. But you're right. The illusion then becomes the reality. But also I can tell you, like on the marketing pieces, you'll see agents who will you know, say, oh, I sold 505 homes, but really that agent really only sold 165 homes. They're also using the number from their brokerage. I make sure that I don't put anything in printing that's not honest and it's not, it's not deceiving. It's really what I do. To me, everything is about integrity and, and not misleading people 
if I have to mislead someone, I, I need to give another message because I don't want to give a message that then someone says that's not true and can show someone that I'm being deceitful or trying to do a play on words that really, if you dig, you know, kind of like politicians do, where they'll kind of repackage it to make it look like they're good at something, even though they're really not. I just want to make sure that everything that, that I say is truthful. What messages do you send into your farm, and how do you send them in there? We do a monthly newsletter into those areas. We do a, just a simple, you know, black and white, except for we do it on colored paper, kind of newsletter, if you will, that we send in to those neighborhoods that we've been doing now for, you know, anywhere from, what, one, probably the newest neighborhoods, probably six years, and um, Wellington, et cetera, I've been doing now for 12 or 13 years, 12 years probably. So I do a monthly newsletter. And then in the busier, busier listing season times, we'll do a lot of, you know, kind of showing houses that we sold and we sold them in, you know, 11 days for 98.3% of the asking price. And so we're trying to then show people that we're having success. Of course, they also see it because they see the sold signs. So we send a newsletter that has more industry stat type stuff, what's going on in their neighborhood from my real estate, you know, how many homes were listed, how many new homes came on the market, how many sold, all that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not someone who who sends a lot of the recipe cards and uh, not a lot. I don't send anything. I don't, do any, I don't send any of the stuff that are non-real estate related because I believe that that's what I'm trying to get across is that I'm a professional in real estate, not all these other items. I'm not trying to be critical of people who do that. I'm just saying it's my philosophy. The newsletter that you're sending out, do you send out one newsletter that's the same for all areas, or do you break out multiple newsletters to be more specific to each neighborhood? Multiple newsletters. And so the name of the subdivision, for instance, that would be the name of the newsletter. How many newsletters are you uh, sending out each month? How many different versions? Four. Four different versions. And so they all have different stats in them based on those specific neighborhoods. Exactly. Other than stats, what are you putting in your newsletter? First of all, how many pages is it? And then what else is in it other than stats? 11 by 17. That's folded over. And it's just writing on the front and back. Usually at the front of it, it will be a either like a little article that I'll write or something about the real estate market or what's going on right now. And then in the inside, it will have the uh, different stats that are going on. And then also I will market on there some of my homes that are currently on the market in that neighborhood because people love to look at pictures and look at their neighbor's houses and all that. So I'll put pictures of the houses on there and, um, and you know, how much they're asking for it and, you know, descriptions and all that stuff. How are you mailing that out? Are you are you sending that by every door direct now, I guess? Is that how you're sending it out? Yeah, the newsletters, we were actually having them all hand-delivered. Now we're actually having them mailed. And we have, a, um, of course, a printing service that takes care of all that for us. Are you sending out just sold postcards, or, or how are you getting the information out there that you've been successful in the area? Well, I guess it is, if you will, just sold postcards, but it's not in the sense that every time I have a just sold house that I send out a postcard for it. But what we'll do is we'll we'll send in a few just sold cards into the different neighborhoods that we're farming in to do the just sold, but we don't do one for everyone. It's like in Wellington, you know, where you might sell 50, 60 listing sides, 
that would be you know quite a few just sold cards also going into 2400 homes but so so but we'll randomly do it will you do just one sold property at a time or do you put say four or five sold properties on a single card sure i do one just sold at a time that way the picture's big enough so they can see the house and then i kind of tell what was unique or special about that one sold it in three days for 101% of the asking price or something. On the newsletter and the postcard, do you have call to actions? And if so, what are they? Yes, it's just for a free online market analysis. Do you use any type of guaranteed sell program? I keep thinking that I should do it, but I haven't. There was a particular agent in our area that, that does it, that doesn't have a great reputation. And so the thing that's always made me reluctant to do it was because I didn't want to be associated with him. And so that's the thing that keeps holding me back from doing it, even though I know there's a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of business from that. But the answer to your question specifically is I do not market that now. I'm not being critical because I'm still debating on doing it. I'm just trying to decide how that makes me look compared to this other person. It's hard to argue with your success. It's obviously working for you, and you have a good reason for thinking about it since it may have a bad reputation in the area because of the other agent. That's, that's an interesting dilemma. Do you have any other USPs that you're using in that neighborhood to set yourself apart? No. No. The main message I'm trying to get across to everyone is that basically I make things happen that I'm the expert in that area and I make things happen and I'm getting, you know, a, a, a certain price and all that. I keep struggling, Mike, trying to decide because I definitely, you know, I was, uh, I was involved in Procter and all that stuff at the very start of my career. And to me, I'm sure a lot of people do it, but, you know, they're, they're the ones I always associate from a training perspective that's big on the USPs. And um, I never have really been able to put my arms around a USP that I felt that had enough legs to really market hard other than probably the guaranteed sell program. And, and, you know, one of the things also for me is that my reputation is it's really important to us and it, it's what's really helped us. And my concern a little bit, even though I understand whatever on the, uh, on the guarantee buy, it's not totally straight. Obviously, the thought that people have is I'm going to call up and you're going to buy my house. And, of course, you will. But, uh, you know, if only these five conditions are met, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not quite as straight up as what I try to be. And so what I'm trying to do is get my arms around, do I feel comfortable with that message? Russell, you've been talking about your team You've mentioned them a couple times. Let's let's get into the team there for a minute. I'd like you to first give us an overview picture of the team by going down a quick list and telling us, say, the, the titles and the positions and what people are responsible for on the team. Sure. First of all, I have a general manager who is responsible both for the administrative folks and the salespeople. And then we have a operations manager, if you will, whose focus is primarily overseeing the administrative aspects of the team. And so she has, you know, daily huddles with our administrative folks and talking about what's going on, responsible for all the hiring and firing administratively. We have a listing department and we have two, we have a listing manager and then her assistant who take care of from the time we list the home 
until the time it goes under contract, creating the flyers and following up with the client, you know, make sure that all the questions are being answered and, and uh, just basically taken care of until it goes under contract. Then we have a closing department with two and a half people, two people full-time and one half-time or part-time. The part-time person is primarily focused in the heavy months for us, which is April through August, that part-time person's obviously putting in a lot more hours, just helping us to make sure that we really stay on top of it. And then we have a marketing person before the person that handled all of our flyers and stuff in the in the listing department was also our marketing person, but now we've moved that person specifically into a marketing role. We have a director of first impressions in the front that handles the client appreciation program that I was telling you about earlier, as well as obviously all the initial contacts of our clients to our team. We just started an inside sales department that we are trying to get our arms around. And so we just hired five people to start in our inside sales department because we thought it would be just as easy bringing five on as it would be bringing one. And then if they leave or whatever, then you got to start all over again. So the thing I do, I, I seem to be doing on the bigger side rather than the smaller side. It just seems a little bit easier. Then you kind of narrow it down if you need to or, or expand it if you need to. So we just started inside sales, and that's primarily going to be following up on the inbound calls that my agents do not reach in the first 15 minutes as well as making a lot of outbound calls, whether it's FISBOs, expires, or calling around our listings. And then we have 12 buyer's agents on our team. And then my mother and my father and I are kind of partners, if you will. My mother, especially, is very heavily involved working with all of my clients. And so she and I kind of do a tag team with my clients to make sure that they're always taken care of. The buyer agents, are they working exclusively with buyers or do they also work with sellers? They primarily work with buyers. They might take two to five listings a year maybe, but they only take it in areas that I do not normally cover. So there's me and another listing partner take 90% of all the listings. And then the other 10% are more kind of random listings around in areas that we don't normally service where the buyer agent maybe is helping someone that's moving from that area. So they're going to sell their house and then help them buy a home in maybe one of the areas that we cover more. And so the 12 buyer's agents will handle those more random listings. Many agents who either have a team or are putting a team together, one of the big questions they always have is compensation. Could you tell us how you're compensating your buyer agents? My philosophy was to basically set up a 50-50 that if someone calls in and the buyer agent converts that person into a client, then that certainly requires a pretty high level of skill to do that conversion, et cetera. And so they get 50% and the team gets 50 if they self-generate the lead, because what I want to do is I wanted to encourage them to go out and create business and find business and not always relying on my marketing. So if they do an open house or if it's from their own sphere, then they get 60% and the team gets 40%. If 
we give them the buyer, so let's say it's a past client, or if I'm helping the person sell their home and then I give them the buyer, so it's more of a hand-me, if you will, then the team gets the 10% bump. So it's 50-50 if they convert someone calling in. If it's from their own efforts, they got the client, they get a 10% bump. And if the team basically handed it to them, then the team gets a 10% bump. And then on listings, what we do, which this has helped, is that there's an upfront fee that is charged depending on what all what all they do for the listing. So if they do the stagers and the virtual tour and if they do the variety of other things that we might offer to our sellers, then they are responsible for those things. Those things come off the top of the commission and then we'll split it either 50-50, 60-40, whatever, depending on how that seller came in. And what's really helped now for me was that it used to be that if the home didn't sell, I just incurred that expense and I ate it. And then I got tired of that. And so then I started making it where the agent was responsible if the home did not sell. So if they took a listing that did not sell, that they were also responsible for half of that expense as well. So let's say if the commission split was going to be 50-50 and let's say there was $900 in expenses incurred when taking that listing, then if that listing canceled, then it cost them $450 and it cost me $450. What resulted from that was that the number of canceled or expired listings that the agents take has dramatically decreased because now they have skin in the game. And so they're much more thoughtful about which listings they take. And they'll come to me quite a bit saying, hey, this is what this person wants. I, I'm concerned it's too high. What do you think? you think I should take that listing? Whereas before, they never hesitated because I was the one that was being stuck with all the expense. Or, or put it with, they'd have to split it if it sold. But if it didn't sell, they had no exposure. And so once that changed, then it really started increasing their or improving their decision making. You mentioned you have a listing partner. Is your listing partner on that same compensation program? If it's an area where we are established in certain cities here that we're established, they get 30%. And then if it's areas outside that we market to, then they get 50% after that upfront fee is taken off, whatever that fee is. So we've kind of factored in how much it costs for our administrative team to handle a listing and then the actual cost of stagers and virtual tour companies and all the other stuff, all those expenses then are, you know, are taken off the top and then they're split as 50-50, which is too heavy is, is the reality. And if I do it over again, maybe I would change that. But for me, we're being very blessed and you know, I can certainly, we're, we're doing fine financially and, and I want my people to be able to reap the rewards of success as well. So, um, I probably overpay in some areas, but I'm looking more for people to be happy and to provide well for their families and to want to be excited and, and want to be part of this team. And, you know, my wife and I, we've been very blessed in the way the compensation is right now anyway. We're nicely rewarded, and, and, and so we really appreciate that. Are you profitable? Yeah, I've always been, I don't know if I've ever not been profitable. Even that first year, I made 35000 um, But last year, we did an excess of 40% last year net before taxes. Well, that's fantastic. 
I don't think I've been below 32 to 35% in probably 12 years. I've never done less than that. So it's been fluctuating between 30 and 40%. Right, 30 to probably 45%. Do you pay yourself a salary? I do. I pay myself a base. And then, you know, it's an LLC. So basically, you know, any of the profits, if you will, you know, I have to pay taxes on each year. And, and, you know, so everything just flows through to me. So um, I pay myself a base and I do part of that because of retirement. And so what we did was we kind of set up a basic salary level, if you will, that allows me to maximize on my 401k. And so that's kind of the premise of how we set up my salary. And then after that, you know, then it's just all part of annual distributions based on profitability of the company. When you say that last year was around 40% net, is that before or after you took your salary? With my salary added back in, it was over 40%. I just want to back up one thing if I can about the agents that I think is important also in mindset is that I will hear a lot of teams where, let's say, if the buyer agent makes a mistake and they forget to include the refrigerator, they're supposed to exclude it and they didn't or whatever the case is. I also believe that if I'm sharing on the upside, that I should also share in the problems or the downside. You know, like in a marriage, you know, you, you can't just get all the benefits of the, everything, the good that happens, but then not absorb any of the negative. And so when the buyer agents make a mistake, just as I told you before about with the employees, about how I handle it with the buyer agents, when they make a mistake, I share in that expense when they do make a mistake, and, and it's based on the percentage of the profit. So if it was one that it was a 50-50 deal, and if the mistake cost $1,000, then I eat 500 and they eat 500. If, if it was one where they get 60% and it was $1,000, then they pay 600 of it and I pay 400 of it. Whereas I know some people, some teams will say, well, if the buyer agent makes a mistake uh, or the listing partner makes a mistake, then that's their responsibility. It's the only way they're going to learn and all that. Personally, I, I don't concur with that because you know, one of the biggest principles that I try to follow is what would I want if I was on the other side? What I try to follow is really that golden rule about you know treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And to me, it doesn't seem fair that I get the upside when they get a builder bonus for $12,000 and I get 6000 of it. But then when they make a mistake for $1,000 and I say, you know, you need to learn from that, that's your problem. You've got to pay for it. I'm not going to, which is what I've heard a lot of team leaders do. I just don't think that's – personally, I don't think that's right. And so if, if I could encourage agents who might be listening to this as they build their team, I think it, as long as everything that you set up, you think about if I was that administrative person, if I was that agent – is, is Are these the rules that I would want to work under, and could I work for that person for the next 15 years? Is that someone that I would respect? Is that, is that a compensation package that I could live with that makes sense for me? Is that the kind of rules and, and, and systems that I can respect and that I'd want implemented on me? And if that answer is no, then I think you need to reevaluate it. Because I think so many people, especially some of the realtors that I've talked to, is that they're always looking at it from their perspective rather than trying to step back and think of it from a client perspective and an employee perspective. I think if they'll change that focus, I think it'll really help them in building up a stronger referral-based business and have a lot better employee retention. Like even my buyer's agents, I think I've got 
four or five of them that have been with me for eight years or more. Well, you know, that's pretty unusual for buyer's agents. It is. But, you know, again, it's just trying to treat the people the way that I'd want to be treated if the roles were reversed. And I, and I think if you did that, I think it'll help you to build up a, a strong, lasting business, in, in my opinion. Russell, while I've been listening to you, I've come to the conclusion that you have a strong sense of loyalty, fairness, and empathy. You try to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're dealing with, either your employee, your, your team member, or your client or customer. Right. Now, that's, that's pretty much how I try to follow the way that we address problems and situations and, and rules and procedures that we have as a, in the company. Russell, what drives you? That's a great question. I think one is I'm very competitive and um, I hate to lose. And so, you know, I'll get a couple of my competitors around here that they're the best things that ever happened to me in my business because I hate to lose. And so that helps me from a internal going when I don't want to keep going. Initially, the money was because it was very critical for me to obviously provide for my family. And then now we, you know, we, um, we've probably exceeded what we need on an annual basis for our family. And so probably the, now the thing that's driving me the most is, uh, well, one is make sure that each year I can still at least meet the, the minimum needs of my family. But also it's fun watching and helping the other members on my team, my general manager, some of the other administrative people, the buyer's agents accomplish what they're wanting to accomplish. And I'm having fun working with them and watching them grow and develop. I'm just so proud of them. They're just phenomenal. And so I'm really enjoying watching them grow. But I've got a big responsibility financially to my family. And of course, you know, I've got to make sure my mom and dad are going to be okay. And so, you know, you've got the financial issues. And then you've also got the more fun things. And that is helping to watch other people grow and develop. Russell, why have you been so successful? First and foremost, I know it's truly because God has blessed us, and certainly undeserving, I promise you. And that's not being uh, modest, <laughs> it's the truth. Um, but I really believe that God has really blessed our business, and um, which obviously carries a huge responsibility with it, you know, of making sure that I honor that and that I give back and do what is the right thing. And so I believe that's first and foremost. And then the the second thing, I guess, is... I believe the philosophy of, of fairness and treating people the way you want to be treated, both whether it's the employee, the buyer agent, the, the, the client, I think that is such a basic principles that everyone would think that everybody follows, but the, the, the surprising thing is there's not that many people that do it. They might do it when times are good. They might do it every once in a while, but to consistently try hard to do the right thing and treat people the way you'd want to be treated is hard to do all the time. And I think that the more that you do that, I think the more that you will be rewarded by God, by people. Uh, I just think it's a, it's such a simple concept to hear, um, but it's, it's a little bit more difficult to play out every day. Russell, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? If I had to do it all over again, knowing what I know now, but just starting out, I would probably start with either A, I'd be a buyer agent for, for a team that was doing pretty successful, 
because what took me seven or eight years to develop, if I could have walked in and seen somebody else doing it for a year, I could have saved myself a lot of money and time by learning, number one. And plus that you start getting the different vendors that you use, the, the title companies, the different, and all the different folks that are involved, all the players you, you would meet and get to know much faster. But let's say if I didn't do that, or even if I did do that, what I would do initially, if I didn't have any money, I would really focus hard on the social media aspect of it. We do some of it now, but obviously it's not a big part of it, but that's free marketing and a great way to get yourself out there. Unless you're doing the radio advertising, et cetera, what I think of more the traditional business is more, you know, elbow to elbow type, you know, getting to know relationship oriented business and the social media aspect of it seems like it is very conducive for that. Again, you're talking to someone who doesn't do Facebook at all, but I understand it. And if I didn't have any money to market and I was trying to look for an inexpensive way to reach people, that would probably be one of my main ways that I would do it would be trying to go more through social media would be one also get very involved like my wife is very involved in the uh, we have three boys you know at the time when I first got into real estate my oldest son was six and our middle one is four now that one just went to college a freshman in college and my middle one is a sophomore in high school and then we had a big surprise and I have a seven-year-old and I'm 49 years old, and that was quite a surprise. He's absolutely phenomenal, fun little guy. But but when my two my my two oldest were six and four, my wife was heavily involved in the school. You know, being you know the room mom, and and wasn't doing it because of real estate stuff. She's doing it because she loved doing that stuff. And you know, both the boys were in sports and all that. And through that, we met a lot of people. And, you know, when you start meeting those people, then they're buying and selling and then you get to help one or two of those and then they know other people and then it just starts mushrooming. And then the other things so to be active or involved in your community. And then the final thing is, is to be extremely knowledgeable about your market. And so like I'm studying all the time what homes have come on the market, what's gone under contract. I'm going out and looking at houses if I haven't seen them before. So still, even being in it so long, there's probably not a person on my team that knows the market better than me, that knows what homes are on the market, knows what things are selling for, know which homes are, why they're not selling, because I'm really become a student of the market. And so like, like even last night, we were watching American Idol or whatever, and, and while my wife's in there watching, and I'm kind of watching too, but at the same time, I'm pulling up to see all the homes that have gone under contract in the last six weeks, um, who are the agents that were doing it, who's had the ones that have represented buyers, whatever, which homes have uh, sold right away. So when I'm at the grocery store, I'm somewhere and someone asks a question about a property, I usually know what's going on. And people look to people that are knowledgeable of the market. I think so many people miss that aspect of it. Or when you, they first start in a business and they just kind of sit in their office thinking someone's going to call. And, and that's not the way it works. You've got to get out there in front of people. So I used to, when I first got started, I went out to builders, but I wasn't necessarily there to talk to the on-site salespeople, even though I know that's what some people do. I was going out there, chatting up with buyers and pulling up a lot of information in homes that were in that price range, that were in that general area in the pre-owns. So I would just kind of start chatting with them about different, oh, yeah, have you seen whatever? Oh, my God, that's so beautiful. They have this, that, and another. And then I'd get those people to go over and look at those houses with me, and the next thing you know, I'd start working with them. 
But again, the people want to talk to people who know what's going on and know the market really well so that you can have not a general conversation about the market, but about specific homes in the market because you've seen and experienced it and you know what they look like and you can have an excitement and, and, and a knowledge when you're talking about it that they can tell, wow, this guy knows what's going on. And so again, becoming that expert. Russell, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think it's critical. I mean, I think it's a thing from the very start. When I first got in the business uh, in 2000, I, I read the thing about Proctor. So I went to the Proctor stuff and I went to some different coaching stuff and Buffini and all these other things. And the first part for me was, first of all, if I heard people doing numbers, at least then I knew it was possible. You know, the first part we don't only first get in is what's possible. Once you hear it's possible, then you try to figure out what did they do? What, well, what was their team structure? How did they do their compensation models? What's their lead generation sources? And you start kind of delving into it. And so one of the things that I do all the time is I'm with Keller Williams, and they have a thing called Agent Mountain where they have all these different interviews of agents and stuff. And I'll go down there, and before I go on a fishing trip or something with my dad, because you're sitting back there and you're not talking to anybody, you're just kind of sitting there fishing, I will download you know, 15 or 20 different interviews and I'll sit there and listen to it. And then the ones that I really learned something from, I'll make note of those and then I'll come back and listen to those again and then make notes and come back and implement it. But, you know, even now doing a a few units like I do, I'm extremely excited to go and listen to different interviews because it's how I learn a, what's possible, what people are doing, grab different nuggets of ideas you know, the whole thing about my pie and the popcorn and the Easter thing was all because of an agent mastermind thing I went to. And I heard one person talk about pumpkin pies. But, you know, it was like me with that client appreciation program. Once you hear one idea, then you think of how can you expand it and make it something bigger and make it you. But the way that you hear that, it's just, I mean, I, God knows I'm not smart. That's for sure. It's just I'm a great copier. And I listen and I hear ideas and then I'll kind of expand on it and make it my own and make it who I am and what I relate to and what I feel comfortable saying and doing. But again, it's by hearing the idea and knowing what's possible, then I can figure out how to make it a reality for me. Well, Russell, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts? The main thing I think is to treat people the way you want to be treated and build a team based on that. And number two is to become an expert in the market and don't be afraid to spend money to make money. Doesn't mean go spend money carelessly, but don't be afraid to hire the administrative person so that you can focus on working with clients. The way you're going to have the most dollar productive is going to be you being elbows to elbows with clients. It's not going to be sitting in your office working on a PowerPoint presentation. And so uh, those are the kind of things that I would do. I get geographical farming can be very strong. When the market turned really slow, it's interesting. I spent less than $4,000. I sold 290 units. I think I was selling less. I was doing like about 60-something thousand dollars in advertising. I cut it down to less than $4,000, and I only sold one unit less in houses because I'd built up the residual of all those years in geographical farming. So to me, that's a good base. But don't look at any one, whether it's Buffini or Proctor or Mike Ferry, and thinking that one of those guys is a solution. I just keep listening to those, and then I'll just create different 
pillars of my business based on the different philosophies, thinking that one of those is not enough to take me where I want to go, but I'm going to put together each one of those and then do it my way. And that's what I have done is trying to learn from all the different coaches. And then like Mike Ferry, I don't do his stuff because I don't, that's not what I relate to, but the Buffini and the Proctor and some of the others I have, and that's the ones I implement. So don't feel that it has to be one way is the only way I would figure out what are all the different ways that relates to your personality that you enjoy doing. Like, for example, I have never, ever called a FISBO or an expired ever. And because I hate it, I don't like doing it. And so I just stay focused on what I like to do. And if you do that, then I think you can last in the business. And if you don't, I think you're going to be miserable. Well, Russell, you prove doing what you like to do is the best path to success. You have a powerful combination, a strong analytical mind and friendly people skills. You shifted your focus and even your DISC personality profile to your eye and the sell side of your business where you could make the biggest impact. Your integrity, honesty, loyalty, sense of fairness, and empathy have been the bedrocks to your business and your success. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who consistently sells 80 to 100 homes per year and maintains a 65% net profit margin. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.